When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. After leaving teaching because of some serious burnout, she vowed to build the community she wished existed when she needed it most. She went from classroom teacher to an educational consultant, instructional designer, and six-figure business owner. Now, she's here to help you achieve happiness and work-life balance, whether inside or outside the classroom. Come join our discussion as we talk about managing teacher burnout, career transitions outside the classroom, starting a side hustle, and everything in between. Here's your host of the Teacher Career Coach Podcast and your new personal cheerleader, Daphne Gomez. Welcome to the Teacher Career Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Daphne Gomez. In this episode, I am talking to Kevin Gray, the President and Chief Content Officer of Westchester Education Services, a B2B product development company. Westchester helps ed tech and ed publishing companies create market-leading curricular materials in all major subject areas. And I've actually worked with Kevin to help him find the best candidates for his freelancing positions and some of his full-time positions at this company. So in this episode, you're going to hear almost what you would hear in these behind closed doors conversations with myself and hiring managers so that you can hear what they're specifically looking for and how to stand out In this specific episode, we're going to focus on contract work for freelancing positions in ad tech companies. Hey, Kevin, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. I know we've had quite a few conversations off of the podcast in the past before, but I would love if you just did a brief introduction to my audience so that they learned a little bit about you and your role at Westchester Education Services. Yeah, absolutely. So I am Kevin Gray. I'm the president and chief content officer of Westchester Education Services. We are what I like to think of as a product development company. So publishers and ed tech companies come to us and we help them build out their product. So a good example of something we might do is a company might have an opportunity in Georgia that their sales staff is really excited about, but they don't have the internal editorial or design or production support to take that work on, they might outsource to us. We would get the specs from them. We would work in collaboration with them, but we would be doing the writing and the editing and the page layout, really building their product for them under their oversight and then turning it back to them. In my role, I was employee number one of this division. We started this division about uh, almost six years ago. And in my role now, I set the strategic vision for the organization, looking at what markets can we work with? What customers are we not working with that we would like to be? What kind of products could we be developing? And then also watching the general growth of our internal team, making sure we've got the... I have an operations director who reports to me and I work you know, mentoring him and working with him and managing him and kind of do we have the right folks to be able to respond to the needs we're seeing. Mine's a bit of a bridge. I see out here in this space, the market's asking for something. Okay. Then I turn to Dave, our operations director and say, hey, we have some opportunities here. How can we build out some support for that? Yeah. And so you're in charge of just basically figuring out what types of full-time positions there are, who are going to be the best fit for those, what types of freelance positions, part-time positions. And that's where we've really connected and synced up 
with members from your direct hiring team to talk about who's going to be the best fits for the roles. And often I have heard you say, which is why I'm having you on this call right now, is that former teachers make great fits for many of the positions that you hire for, even though there are people in the editing space with three years, maybe working as a newspaper editor that are probably applying for to the roles as well. Why do you think teachers make such a great fit for these types of positions? The biggest part is an understanding of pedagogy and curriculum, right? Obviously, to be a writer or editor, you need to know how to write. But teachers bring a subject matter expertise that someone coming from the outside world doesn't necessarily have. Teachers are also great because they're really well organized. Often, they're really up on the various different trends. So right now, science of reading is a really big deal. And so teachers who have already made that transition in the classroom may understand it better than our clients do. So that really that understanding of curriculum and pedagogy, and then also how to support teachers, how to build materials out that are going to engage students and that are going to support the teachers and that are things that teachers are going to actually use. All of that is a very precious mindset and precious resource that we really like to tap into. Yeah. And I love having those behind the scenes conversations with people talking about like, what is a non-negotiable? Like what is they absolutely have to have experience doing X, Y, and Z. And most of the time it is something that teachers are able to do, but maybe they needed to work on the editing team for the newspaper or have a little bit more experience that they put on their resume to stand out for those particular roles that we were looking to help you fill. But for this conversation, we're just going to stick to the freelancing positions that you have. You Mm -hmm. have about four different categories of freelancing positions that you hire for on more of a like mass scale. Do you mind sharing a little bit more about what those freelancing positions are? Sure thing. So the real bread and butter of the freelance team is lands, particularly with teachers, lands in in four areas. The first is in writing. And so writing teacher's edition, student edition, in all of the various different subject areas, particularly math, science, and literacy, and social studies. Those are the really big, big ones right now. Also, editing roles, the folks who would come in and look at the material that's been written and then make sure that it conforms to the client's not just their style guides, but also kind of their conceptual guidelines. And then really looking at also translation. We do a lot of translation work. So former educators who are bilingual, who can do, you know, oversee translations and do editing of translations are invaluable, in particular because education has such a specific vocabulary that you can't just turn it over to Google Translate or turn it over to one of these massive translation groups. Folks who understand education and the language and vocabulary that they're translating into are critical. And then most recently, the group that we've added, and this is about two or three years ago, we started a culturally responsive education review service, uh, which is a really long way of saying that we help our clients make sure that the materials they're producing are culturally responsive. They are not just free of bias, but also reaching students in ways that map to the students' own lives or own experiences or that others can learn through those experiences. So we have a position, a freelance position called the CRE Reviewer, where the team works with a rubric and they're paired with other reviewers with different lenses, looking at customer material and then providing feedback on where things are not as culturally responsive as they could be, and then how the customer could edit it to make it so. And there are so many teachers who are really passionate about, especially that last 
section that you talked about. And so mm-hmm. this would be probably a good fit for someone who still wants to keep their finger on the pulse and be able to support equity and education and doing work that is intrinsically motivating, but from outside of the classroom, right? Yep. It's also a really nice entry point into the world of educational development or content development, because what a teacher who works as a reviewer is bringing is their lens, right? We teach them the rubric. We teach them how to look at the materials. But, you know, by and large, they're student materials that they've probably already seen similar instances of in their own classroom. They're teaching materials that they've probably used before or similar to. So this is a nice way to bring folks in where they bring what they know, and then we have them looking at materials in a slightly different way than they would in the classroom. And they get it's really almost osmosis, right? You sort of learn by osmosis how these things are put together in a relatively low-risk way in terms of getting into the industry. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit because that's such an important part of this is I've always told people that you want to try to get your hands dirty. You may think that you love curriculum writing, but you might not want to make that your full-time role until you sit down and you actually do 40 hours of curriculum writing as a side hustle or for some a part-time position, because you may realize, actually, I don't love staring at a computer all day. I start to get overwhelmed with it. And you may realize that what you really liked was like the project management or the planning part of curriculum. So this is a really good, like you said, low risk way to feel out if you really are excited about editing or curriculum writing and be able to put on your resume that you worked for a company outside of the classroom as well. Where do you see this being a bad fit? What types of people have you seen go into this with the wrong expectations of what freelancing is that we want to alleviate those roadblocks or I'm having a hard time explaining it, but hopefully you get what I'm saying. Yeah, no, absolutely. I would say one of the challenges is where it's been a bit of a challenging fit is that we work with a lot of different clients in the space who have their own voices and their own pedagogical approach or their own idea about how curriculum should be created. So folks who have a broad understanding of different ways to create content and can hear what the client's asking for and replicate that to help the client achieve their goals, they're going to be the most successful. Folks who have a very rigid idea of this is the only way that math should be taught, it may be challenging to find projects an absolute best fit with that particular background. Yeah. And that's such a challenging piece. It's almost similar to a marketing position because the marketing person's role, they're going to come with their a little bit of flair, some subject matter knowledge about what they're doing. But ultimately, their role is to execute on what their client's vision is. Their role is to replicate what the client's voice is. And so in this particular situation, you're going to be saying this is the type of math you're going to be teaching, but you're going to be actually doing it and replicating what the client is looking for in that work. And you may not have as much creative freedom as you would on your, let's say, like Teachers Pay Teachers store. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely right. And actually, it's a challenge we see from people who come from the publishers or ed tech companies to work with a vendor as well. And it's just that we work on so many different projects. We believe in the projects we're working on. We don't take work we wouldn't stand by, but we recognize there are differences in the way things can be approached. And so even folks who worked at a publisher who were used to the one way that publisher did the work can find it a little challenging to make that jump over.
Do you mind sharing what a regular like hourly rate for one of these positions would be? Yeah, not at all. We pay by piece. So generally that's by what we'll do is look at a page. So if it was a writing position, for instance, we might look at a page and say, okay, does, how much time does this take? If it takes an hour, we have an hourly rate. So writers, we try to benchmark between 50 and 60 an hour. Editors try to benchmark it between 30 to 35 an hour. That seems to be the prevailing market rate. So if you had a page that we were expecting that it was going to take about an hour, it'd be about 50 bucks per page. And if you were going to edit it, it'd probably be 15 to 1750 or so. It depends on the project. And we do work with our freelancers to make sure that they're compensated fairly. The best advice that I could give is we have some freelancers who can look at those projects and say, what's the most efficient way that I can really create some great product here? The ones who do that are the ones who usually end up beating the estimates and then are are highly compensated. Because if we thought you were going to take an hour and we're paying you for an hour's worth of work and you get it done in 25 minutes and it's still really good quality, it's the same as if it took you an hour and a half to do it. Yeah, absolutely. That And that's kind of Overall, some of the like freelancing best practices is figuring out your systems, making sure that you've create some sort of like project planning and project management system. Maybe it's potentially batch working if you have a lot of work that you're doing and it's easier to let me research these 10 different topics offhand and then let me write the copy on all 10 of them using the same type of template. But that might be something that is a little overwhelming for someone who's just coming from the classroom and wanting to dip their toes in. How much onboarding do you actually do on your end and how much training do you do for these types of roles? Are they expected to figure out how to be the best curriculum writer or do you have resources to help kind of scaffold them into these positions? We have a resource manager who does all of the kind of sourcing and kind of advocacy for our freelancers. If someone's coming into a space and they are maybe looking for a side hustle while they're in the classroom and they've never done content development before, We'll look for projects that are relatively low, low ask or low cognitive load, I guess. That's where some of the CRE reviewing can be good because it's, okay, you look at this and then you provide feedback on it. Some of that work has an emotional toll because looking at stuff that is problematic after a while can be a little, a little disheartening, but you're actually, you know, part of making it better, which I think is what drives a lot of our folks. So we don't have a formalized training in place yet. We have been working on different ways to build out that training. But what has been successful in the past is really a scaffolded approach. I've got three or four of our best freelancers are folks who came to me who maybe were in academia and did some copy editing. And we found some projects where it was the kind of work that we might put an editorial assistant in-house on. So really finite set of tasks, really well-defined perhaps a little repetitive, but in something that someone can get an easy win on. And then when they do that well, we'll look for a more difficult project or a more difficult project. It would be very unlikely we would take someone from the classroom who's never written anything before, now that they've done any curriculum development and said, hey, congratulations, you're writing three chapters of this science student edition. I think that would be very overwhelming. I wouldn't want to put someone in that position. And someone may be listening to this podcast episode right now and being like, what do you mean they've never written curriculum? All teachers have written curriculum, but that's honestly not the case. There are some schools where they just, here is all of the curriculum and you are forced to basically use exactly what is inside of these books. And then there are some teachers who are given nothing and they're set, they're given the instructions for the next two weeks, figure out how you're going to teach on these 10 subjects and 
you may need to put something together. So that's going to vary from district to district on whether or not they have that experience. Are you looking for anything on resumes to help you decide who's gotten more experience than others? Yeah, that is a great question. And that's something I think that some teachers don't do enough of is calling out that sort of related skill or relevant skill. So skill transfer, right? Maybe you haven't written for a teacher's edition, but you were part of the team that revamped the curriculum for your ELA program. Or maybe you are in a district. I uh, spent a few years in the classroom myself, and I had some objectives at the end of the year we had to get to, and then everything else was up to me. And that was um, that was a little overwhelming, but it also really honed my curriculum development skills. So I would tell teachers, when you're looking to move into this world, if you haven't done a lot of outside freelance work, but you've done a lot of that curriculum development within your district, please highlight that. Show what that looks like. Explain what you did, because that may help us pair you better with a program somewhere you know, where we know, okay, the idea of a scope and sequence, for instance, is probably not lost on this person. And the way publishers might organize content is maybe not that different from the way you've organized the curriculum in your district. So yes, absolutely. I don't think we see enough of folks highlighting that. I'd love to see more. Yeah. And that's obviously something that I go deeper into in the teacher career coach course of like how to make sure you're looking at the job description and pulling your relative experience into it. But for these editing and curriculum roles, I feel like people make the inference that just their teacher resume is enough. Like I was a teacher and they're going to understand how this is relevant to this position. Maybe they've made a couple of tweaks to the language on it where it sounds a little bit more corporate, but they don't realize like these are going to be competitive roles as well, especially the full-time ones, but even the freelance and part-time ones. And so it's important that you're demonstrating to the person that you're applying to that you're actually passionate about this role and that you've done enough research to understand how your skills translate. Just those tiny tweaks to your resume are going to demonstrate with a little bit more confidence, I know what this role means and this is how my skills will translate to it. Absolutely. I mean, that's exactly what we look for when we get positions. If we get 50 resumes and 40 of them are, well, I was a teacher in a classroom and 10 of them are, I was a teacher in a classroom. And as part of that, I was part of a team that over the summer did curriculum review that I was in an unstructured classroom where maybe I and another teacher worked together to develop the curriculum for the third grade. Those are things that are going to set you apart from just a, I was a teacher in a classroom. Yes, we can infer that probably there's some experience there, but uh, really calling out the curriculum piece. And then any writing experience too, even if it's not curriculum writing, if you've worked written articles for a local newspaper or have a blog, you know, something that shows that you know how to develop content. Because again, that's a very transferable skill, even if it's not for the particular subject that we need. If you have the subject matter expertise and you can show you're a, a solid writer or a solid editor, really show that so we can make the leap and say, oh yes, here are some transferable skills that we really want to bring in. I feel like this part is getting lost in translation somewhere. I feel like there's this really big movement of people telling others to get on LinkedIn and share their day-to-day because that's sharing their 
writing. Oh, they're going to see that you write every single day and you'll become a better writer if you're sharing, you know, what your day-to-day job search looks like. It's going to be far more effective if you put together a blog about gardening and you do deep dives into best practices when it comes to, you know, vegetable gardening or something where they can see really well-researched, really like strong content and not so much about just writing for the sake of writing, but writing with an actual purpose and an objective with editing and all the best practices built into it. Yep, I completely agree. Yeah, I feel like that's a part that I think I've told people to maybe just do one or two really great articles. It doesn't have to be about your teacher transition or what's going on, just something that you're really passionate about so that they can see it, especially if you're looking to get into the writing world. But all the things that we've talked about so far could translate into full-time positions as well, how to translate Mm -hmm. your resume, Mm -hmm. how to stand out for these types of positions. But the ones that you are mostly hiring for right now are freelancing positions. And that comes with a couple of nuances that I feel like it's really important to address. So we talked about what the regular hourly rate would be for these types of positions. Now, how common is it for people to take freelancing positions just at your company and that's their full-time position? I would say as a freelancer, I would highly encourage even the best folks that are working for us diversify and have multiple clients. Frankly, because as a freelancer, it's expected that you're working with multiple folks. We certainly don't want to impinge upon anyone's ability to work with any other providers. And this world can be, and it's project by project, and this world can be a little fits and starts. There might be a project that you thought was going to start in September, and it doesn't start until October. So if you've got a handful of projects that you're working on, you can mitigate the risk. A challenge there is to be also to be able to understand, though, your limits, right? You don't want to take on five projects that are each full-time because you're thinking, oh, the schedule is going to shift and I'll make it work. I've seen folks really burn out that way because they didn't understand how to mitigate their own workload. It can be a little feast or famine, but the folks that we go back to time and time again are the ones who committed to work, got the work in on time, and then consistently delivered. And so if you're taking on three projects and trying to juggle too much, that may jeopardize that. And you may end up hurting the relationship with us or another vendor or publisher because you weren't able to deliver to what you said you would be able to. Yeah, it's so overwhelming. Like, it feels like it's a risk. It's not going to be a full-time position. It's not going to pay the salaries. I had these exact same concerns when I left the classroom. I had a freelancing contract position. It was a little bit of a unicorn job. It was at Microsoft. It was a full-time contract position. So I had an annual, this is your salary for the year, but you're at will. In three months, we may say, sorry, you don't have a job anymore. This freelancing position is cut off but it was renewed year after year after year. This is not one of those types of positions. This is a very per project. They're going to say, here's what you have. This is how many hours it is. And it's not necessarily going to replace your income by next month. There is a podcast episode that I do with Jay Klaus, who is hands down one of my favorite people to talk to about freelancing because he's so knowledgeable about how to mitigate the risk, how to make sure financially it makes sense, how to set up like business entities, if you need to, and all of the nitty gritty of how to find different clients outside of Westchester Education Services. If you're looking to make this a full-time thing, people absolutely do. 
but that's going to take work in itself. So if you're interested in learning all of those pieces, I highly recommend you go back to episode 13 of this podcast with Jay Klaus just to do like a 101 of everything freelancing. But there's a lot of pros that come with this. It's a low risk. You're putting something on your resume and you're getting your feet wet. You're understanding a little bit more about this role. So if you do have additional bandwidth or if you're looking to make extra money, this is a really good fit. Is there anything else that we haven't really covered that you feel like is really important to talk about for these types of positions, Kevin? Yeah, I would say if you're looking to transition from the classroom, pick up some freelance work while you're in the classroom still. It can be a little bit to juggle, but find something small that you think you can do successfully so you can really get a feel for it and find out, do I really like doing this? Writing every day sounds great until you actually have to stare at a blank cursor every day. And you may not like that. Or you may say, oh, I'm really passionate about math, but you may not like to try to deal with the six different ways six different companies want to do it. When we're looking for folks who we can bring on board, having taken some small projects and then continuing to take larger projects is is really good. The other thing that I would say is build a strong relationship with the folks that you're freelancing with. There's a lot of movement within companies, within vendors like myself, and within publishers and ed tech. So people who I met years ago in my first role are now working for me in this company. I have had the same situation where I met somebody... And then years later was working with them. There's a lot of travel. So within organizations, not necessarily physical travel, but folks move around a lot. So make friends, get to know the folks you're working with. And I will say, honestly, the best way to do this, and I would tell my freelancers this all the time, don't let, and, and this is cliche, but don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I will take good content from a freelancer that's delivered on time every day over spectacular uh, content that is two weeks late and I didn't know it was coming in. By that point, that content's useless. Get me something that's good. Get me something that's on time. I've got editors who can work with it. Be open to feedback so you can clean it up if need be. But really communicate with your leads, strive to hit the goals and just turn things in on time. Yeah, the networking piece of this is huge because Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. ultimately once I left the classroom and I was working in that first position, I realized very quickly it had exposed me to so many people that did go on to different tech companies. Working for a Fortune 500 company comes with a lot of perks of I knew that I would get my foot in the door at different companies and it did. I was able to get an instructional design position with zero experience ahead of time, just someone able to vouch she's a quick learner and she loves video editing and creating things on her own. She's gonna crush it in this role. And so I went to another startup and I was able to do that position just because someone was able to vouch for my work ethic. So this piece of getting your foot in the door for people who can open doors for you outside is huge. It's bigger than asking and begging strangers on LinkedIn who don't actually get to see what you work like to give to take a chance on you because that is a bigger risk on them. But I also want to talk a tiny bit before we go about One piece of this that I know is a hesitation for someone is like, I don't want to put together a project to apply for a position. And my personal feelings about this, like when there's in the application process, it's like, pretend you're a project manager or put something together or do a training for us. If you see that project right off the bat and your gut is screaming, I don't want to waste my time on this, that might be a sign that you haven't even figured out if you like this role. Like that is my gut is like, if you don't want to do 30 minutes of it, 
But then there's also a dark side, a more nefarious side where companies do take advantage of people and ask them to do unpaid labor. And I know you and I have had a conversation about this as well. What is your feelings? Are you going to ask them to create 10 pieces of free content even to just get in your candidate pool? No. I mean, what we look for, we do have some level of vetting. If you're a writer and you have a portfolio, we'll look at the portfolio and see if that's a good fit. But remember, we don't know anything about you. And so there are sometimes some skills tests we'll have folks do. I did it to get land my first job. I had a four pages of educational material I had to copy edit. And I went to the library and got the Chicago manual style and brushed up and worked through it. And it was a reasonable ask, right? It was an hour of my time to prove that I could do the work. I have also applied for a company once uh, years ago that had me edit an entire chapter of a book. And then I found out my friend edited the next chapter. Somebody else I knew edited the next chapter and we didn't get paid for it. And that's how they were getting their (laughs) editing done. Don't take that stuff on. I'd say it's a reasonable ask, 30, 45 minutes. You know, if you're interested in the job, consider that you'd spend that much time in an interview. And that helps us get to know who you are. If it's beyond that, it's probably too good to be true. And it may not be a good fit for you. Yeah, it's just such a tricky part because people get so discouraged where they're like, oh, this place had hundreds of applicants. And I need to tell them, not everyone actually went to step number five. Not everybody mm-hmm. actually saw that it took 30 minutes. They're like, yeah, never mind. I just wanted to spray and pray and just hope that my resume got to the top of it. And I'm not interested in learning how to do this project because it could be potentially a waste of time. If you're interested in curriculum writing and editing, you're going to want to get your hands dirty. And this is a good way to at least challenge yourself if it is a reasonable ask. But also at the same time, look from the lens of, are they taking advantage of me? Are they asking me to put together a 10-hour campaign for them of some sort that is obviously that they could get paid for? Yeah, exactly. I think there are ways you can tell when it's the same test over and over again as well. I mean, that was it was clear when in years, that was 25 years ago when I did the copying test, it was clear to me that this was a generic test, a little bit of science, a little bit of math. It wasn't a product that was in production. And so I could look at it and say, okay, that seems very reasonable. They need to see my skill set. I need to see if I'm a good fit. Sure, I'm happy to do that. But like you said, if you're finding yourself building a product for them and it's more than an hour, hmm, It's either taking you longer than it probably what they envisioned or probably should. So it might not be a good fit for you just because that might not be the right skill set or there's something shady and nefarious going on. Okay. And then I have to end it with asking the biggest question because people who are listening this whole time are probably like, where are these roles posted? If they're excited about applying, where can they find this on your website? Yes. So we have a careers page on our website that has all the various different freelance positions that we're looking for. So start there. After you post, you'll likely hear from our resources manager who will ask you to set up a profile in our vendor management tool that helps us to pair people with the right skills. It gives applicants an opportunity to fill out, hey, here's who I am. These are the things I like to do so that we're able to match. And uh, so, yes, look at our website and uh, those things are generally posted there as we need them. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, Kevin, for being here today. This has been such a great conversation. It's always a pleasure to connect with you. So I just really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Yeah, absolutely. I love doing this. I love helping more people get into the space. I got a lot of lucky breaks when I was starting off and I'm happy to pay it forward. So thanks for having me. Thank you so much.
I want to give a huge thank you to Kevin for coming on and sharing his advice with this audience. If you are a teacher who is transitioning outside the classroom and you are finding this resource library supportive of your transition, please pay it forward and let other people know that the Teacher Career Coach podcast exists. There are so many teachers who have these exact same types of questions that have no idea that this podcast even is out there. Thank you so much for being a listener and supporter of this show, and we'll see you on the very next episode.